I love the phrase he says, oh, the glory and the wonder of it all. I think, I think for, for many reasons, certainly at least our heightened view of our own glory that we, um, we miss the wonder and glory of it all. Particularly if you've grown up in church. You know, the incarnation is something you talk about every year, um, at least from a distance you talk about. And we just lose the beholding of the glory of God displayed in the incarnation. And then we pass on to our children oftentimes then just instead of the frail humanity of Jesus and the strength of the Spirit and the will of the Father to work through Him, we pass on frail faith, uh, frail visions of the glory of God. And uh, I don't, we don't want to do that. We want to pass on to our children at Christmas time A very arresting picture of the glory of God displayed in His Son becoming flesh to rescue His people. Amen? Amen. With that said, over the past couple weeks we've been talking about this idea of imitating Jesus. What does that look like? How do we do that? How do we get at that? How do we, how do we <clears throat> think rightly about living, ultimately what we're talking about is living for God. And Jesus being clearly the perfect example of what that looks like. And we're trying to war against, at least in some of this, against the idea of moralism, where we would just simply become, uh, you know, what would Jesus do kind of people, the WWJD bracelet people. Um, certainly there's a value in that if it's built on the right foundation. And so we talked about the first week about how we need a Savior more than we need just simply a model to imitate. That if we just, if we, if the only question, and even really the primary question, if, if that is just simply what did Jesus do, now what should I do? I, I think we will, the danger is great that we would slip into just legalistic, moralistic, we just kind of do the right thing and, that's what we do. But instead, what the pictures paint for us is, is not a, a return to, first and foremost, what did Jesus do, but a return to, first and foremost, most frequently, to the thought of we need a Redeemer. Like when you think about Christmas, we should be thinking our Redeemer has come. Not just here comes this guy who's going to live a life that's going to help me be more honoring to God, even as important as that is, our thoughts are, should be, God's gift of redemption wrapped in swaddling clothes in the face of His Son Jesus. That should be our thought. That we need a Savior more than we need an example. So when you think about Christmas, like, where are your thoughts going we need a Savior more than we need a model to imitate. We must begin with our desperate need for rescue and God's marvelous plan to do that, not in a way any of us would have ever designed it, but in His marvelous plan. 
Then last week, we kind of talked about two things there. Was First of all, this biblical mandate to imitate Jesus. That, that there is actually, it's not just a good thing to do, it's something that we are to do. It is an imperative of scriptures that we are to look to our Savior and abide in Him and live like He did. It's not just something we do. I, I know a, a, a lot of a lot of teaching presents Jesus as kind of some good habits to get ourselves into, you know, for a better life. And that's, that's not the point. He is the true Son of God come in the flesh. And if we are to honor our God, we will certainly do so only in so much as we imitate Jesus. Another was very helpful last week as, as Rusty brought us through multiple passages to help us understand that the key then to imitating Jesus is less about product, less about outcome, and more about attitude. It's more about how is our heart working in the process. For which we talk, he talked about the idea of humility. That the key of attitude, the key attitude is found in humility, and particularly in the humiliation of Jesus. Okay, two passages come to mind. I'm not going to rehash any of this, but Philippians 2 and John 13. You have the coming of Jesus in the flesh. We'll look at that a little bit more here in a little bit. And John 13 is kind of the preamble to the cross where Jesus is showing them the servitude and the sacrifice and the humble attitude of a Savior. And you see, if we don't, this is one of the, I think the key points that came out of last week, was if we don't begin with humility, then all our acts following will be nothing than acts of self-righteousness. Jesus comes and lives in humility and lives nothing but righteous acts. And the danger for us is to, in pride, have things that look like sanctification in our lives, but are nothing more than acts of self-righteousness. So, that's kind of where we left off last week. This week, I, I want to kind of set it up this way. Some of this I kind of rehashed at the opening of the series, and so I'm going to kind of spend a little more time setting this up again. But here's what, something I want you to, uh, I'm going to make some very generalized comments and observations here. Um, I have left names out so as not to offend certain parties. Um, I, I'm kind of joking, okay? All right. If you grew up in a certain tradition, here I think is likely a struggle you have. The humanity of Jesus was downplayed maybe even non-existent. And on top of that, you were so afraid of the Holy Spirit because those in a different uh, tradition were calling Him a ghost. Okay? If you grew up in the other tradition, after the cross and initial salvation, you kind of skipped over Jesus 
and spent all of your time trying to work the Holy Ghost. Okay, fair enough. I left names out of those pictures. You can probably figure out which camp you lived in for if you grew up in church. I know which one I was in. I was in the first one. Here's the net problem. Many of us never learn how to live in the power of joy in the work of the Spirit. What does that look like? What does it look like for us to be strong, filled, followers of Jesus Christ? For the one tradition, all you know is melancholy, weak-hearted living for Jesus. And in the other tradition, all you know is a roller coaster ride on the Holy Ghost. But this is not the way our Savior lived. He lived in neither of those camps, neither of those traditions. He lived in steady joy and the immeasurable power of the Spirit. He lived so in tune with the Spirit. That he could almost, that he could taste it. That he could touch it. You know what I'm talking about. If you've been a Christian for any measure of time, majority of the time for us, this power of the Spirit is only something known usually in the midst of great trial and suffering. You know, it's when, it's when you've given up your own power and self-righteousness and such and have nowhere else to turn but to Jesus. It's in those moments when you can almost reach out and touch the work of the Spirit in your life. Trying to put words and trying to describe what's this look like. It's, it's the steadying hand of God upon your soul and your heart. It's the Spirit who reminds you of the truth that you once believed. It's the Spirit who lifts your eyelids from the horizontal to the vertical plane. It's the Spirit who takes you to the Word and gives you wisdom and discernment. Maybe even rebuke. It's the Spirit who reminds you of the precious blood of your Savior Jesus. It's the Spirit who reminds you that whatever may fall today, your inheritance as a child of God is secured. You see, Jesus Jesus lived. And and just a, a broad reading of the Gospels will show that He lived tasting, experiencing Loving, enjoying this kind of life every day, all day long, without ceasing. He communed, he walked, he depended, he worked in the Spirit without ceasing. I don't know about you, but this life is tiresome. It's hard. If you want to do something other than just exist, it's hard. And so when I, when I watch Jesus 
I want to watch him through the Gospels. And then, and then watch the way the Old Testament speaks about how he will be and how Paul and the other apostles describe how he was. And, and you go, wow. Like, I want that. And I think, for many of us, we just think that that's just not even remotely possible. He who began a good work will finish it. I think we forget. Here's what I want to do today. I want to do two things. The first part is I want to spend some time simply looking at examples of Jesus depending on the Spirit. Okay, so here, as you guys know, we typically like to just be in a passage and work through that passage. And, and I'll tell you, even as a, as a preacher in studying Preparing a sermon like this is way harder than uh, what we typically do. I'm like, okay, this verse and this passage here and this passage here, and i got to make sure I'm not pulling any of these out of context. And, you know, it's just easier just to be in a verse. But sometimes it's good for us to jump out of that mold and do something a little more like what we're going to do today and have been doing the past couple weeks. So I want to spend some time simply looking at some examples of Jesus depending on the Spirit, like watching Him and how He interacts with the Spirit in life. Second, I'm going to simply draw some applications for our body here. What does this look like? What are some things that we can do, that we should do as a body in light of what Christ and how Christ has lived? One of the things when we think about application, if there's something that Jesus has done, we can say... Clearly, that is something worthy of imitation. If it's something that's possible for us to do, then it's something that's worthy of imitation. We don't, we don't operate with that kind of assumption with any other characters in the Bible, I mean, other than the Spirit in God. Uh, but apart from the Trinity, like we don't just assume everything David did was okay. You get my point? Okay, good. But before we do both, before we do kind of these two things, what I need to kind of give out some real quick, and just bear with me for a second, a couple theological assumptions, a couple, a couple assumptions that I'm going to make as we work through this that I just don't have time to work through these assumptions. The first theological assumption is this, that Jesus predominantly lived dependent on the Spirit and the Father. So that's, the, that's one theological assumption. Just, again, hang with me for a few moments. There's three primary views concerning how Jesus lived in relation to his dependence on the Father. There's the occasional dependence, the predominantly dependent, and exclusively dependent. Okay, Just wanted to get those out there. There are different views. My view is that he predominantly lived in dependence on the Father and the Spirit predominantly. I'm not, again, I'm not going to go into why, and we're not going to look at all the examples. See, Jesus, I believe Jesus' normal mode of operation was not to reach into his goodie bag of divinity, but instead was to reach up in dependence on the Father and the Spirit. That they worked through his humanity. But here's the deal, that doesn't exclude the exceptional manifestations of the divine nature. So I think there are times where Jesus is working 
in his divine nature. I think one of those examples would be when he forgives sins. So those who believe that Jesus never lives in his, works out of his divinity, would say he's representatively forgiving the sins of his people. I think he's actually acting as God in that moment, saying, I forgive your sins. Like he's acting in his divinity, saying, I forgive your sins. Your sins are forgiven. So I think, I think there are some cases where he does actually display divine power, but I think his predominant work is independence on the Spirit. So that's the first theological assumption. The second theological consumption is the, what we popularly well, theologically know as like the kenosis, or the, this putting on of the flesh. And what does that mean? So if you're looking for a phrase here for the theological assumption number two, is the concealing of the divine the concealing or the veiling of the divine. Because here's the question. How is it possible for Jesus to express human powers in light of his divine powers? Like you would think that the one would be overriding, right? The other one would be the, like, he knows that because he's God. Right? He knows what's going on in their minds because of, he's God, because he has divine power. Like, How is it possible, and for some of you maybe this, this might blow your mind, how is it possible for Jesus to be ignorant when he was omniscient? You ever thought about that? When the Bible talks about how Jesus grew in wisdom, that means he was lacking some wisdom prior to. So how is he able to be ignorant if he was also omniscient? How is it possible for him to grow in wisdom if he was all wise? So again, I, 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 I'm not going to dive in. We've this, I think we've preached one or two on this. But the orthodox view is that during Jesus' state of humiliation, during his incarnation, that the incarnation involved not only the addition of a human nature, but also some form of veiling or concealment of his divine glory. Let me give you an example that my, one of my professors gave. Uh, he said, imagine this gentleman goes to a car dealership. You know, what are, pick your favorite car. Maybe it's a, a Mercedes or a Ferrari or you know, something like that. Imagine your favorite car. Uh, if it's a minivan for you, then, then that, that's fine. I'm going to stick with like a Mercedes. So he goes to the car, kind of like what Santa Claus has been hanging around right now. You see those commercials every year. Santa Claus is choosing a Mercedes and not this, the reindeer. And uh, so he goes to the dealership. He wants to test drive this Mercedes. He takes Mercedes out for a spin by himself. The guy looking to purchase the car. While he's driving, he thinks, ah, there's a dirt road. And it happens to be raining. He goes down the dirt road, enjoying this Mercedes, going, I wonder what it can do on this nice, flat, but muddy dirt road. He drives, and as he's driving, he's just enjoying it. The mud's flipping everywhere, and, and it's just, you know, because you know, Mercedes can't handle that mud that too well. It needs to be on pavement. And, but mud's flipping everywhere. It's getting all over the windshields, and, and everything's covered. And he, he gets back. He pulls back onto the road finally and drives back to the dealership. And the guy at the dealership's going, what? 
what happened to my car? Like, i got to sell this thing. Oh, my goodness. Like, what have you done? And the guy says, very calmly, says, listen, I haven't, I haven't done anything to your car. It's all still there. Everything's still intact. It's perfectly fine. You can sell this car. It'll be no issue. It's just, it's just got a little bit of mud on it. It's just covered. You see, the, the point is that the car, the divinity of God is in Jesus is still there. It's not been pulled away. It's not been, it's not been left in heaven. It's there. But there's a sense in which the, the things like omniscience and omnipresence has been kind of veiled for a period of time while he was here on earth. So again, I don't have time to dive into all that, but and scriptural examples and such, but that's, we would talk of the theological assumption number two, that the concealing of the divine. However, I will say this, when it comes to the idea of his divinity and his humanity, at some point, we all have to bow to the divine mystery. At some point, we have to bow in humility, saying we don't understand at some point, you just have to trust God, which I am discovering is an increasingly popular struggle. We just have to trust God. But now I want to draw our attention back to the beginning. So this is theological assumptions number one and two. I think one of, if not the, fundamental aspect of Jesus' humanity would be His humility. And as I kind of work through this very quickly, it's going to launch us into these, these works of Jesus in the Spirit. I think the idea of humility actually drove His humanity to utter dependence on the Father and the Spirit. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, very quickly here. It says this, Who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just very quickly here, Paul tells us that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient. I just want you to note here and put in the back of your mind, notice the connection, the tie between this humility and this obedience. That he's living this life that God's called him to live, this obedience to the Father, and it's inseparable from the idea of humility. But what is obedience? It's ultimately a trust and dependence on the one in authority. See, in Jesus' humility, he was ultimately trusting and depending on the Father and the Father's aid through the Spirit. Again, back to, the, back to verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So everything leading up to that being obedience as well. You see, we would be served well to remember that we will not be dependent if we are not humble, and we will not be obedient if we are not both dependent because of our humility. 
what will happen is we'll only ask for help when we think we need help. So you see how, how humility plays a practical role in this? You'll only depend on the power of the Spirit when you think you need the power of the Spirit. And I don't know if you have rightfully assessed your life, but I would argue from many of us our experience has been this. We tend to think we don't need the power of the Spirit very often. Matter of fact, probably most of the time. That's how we can go hours upon hours without even thinking about God. So we will not be dependent if we're not humble. We will not seek the power of the Spirit if we're not humble. And, and then obedience just, just thrown out the window. Now we have to be careful here because in pride we can also ask for help or give the appearance of dependence. So just, we just have to be careful. Our hearts so are quick to twist things. Like, are we dependent, here's the question I asked in my notes, are we dependent on the right thing or are we dependent on the convenient thing? Like, are we asking the right people for help or are we asking the convenient people for help? We have to be careful because our pride can mess with things very quickly. But instead, humble dependence on God's means of grace. See, Jesus knew that in his humanity, he needed help. Jesus knew this. You see this, I'm not going to look at this passage today, but you see this in the garden when he says, he's not scolding the disciples for falling asleep on him. He's just simply recognizing there's an issue. The flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. Jesus knew the weakness of the flesh. He knew he needed help. And he had the faith that God had provided it. And today as we're going to look at, particularly through the Spirit. You see, one of the main themes in the Gospels and Acts is that Jesus was dependent on the Holy Spirit. You just can't get away from that. One author I read this week said this, Each of the Gospel writers describes Jesus with an emphasis uh, with an emphasis peculiar to the interests and the purposes of that writer. So each gospel writer has kind of their own unique emphasis. He said, but he goes on, but all agree on at least two fundamental matters. One, they all speak about how Jesus was indeed a human being, a genuine human person, owning all the limitations that pertain to humanity. Two, that Jesus depended upon the Holy Spirit throughout his entire life to enable him to burst the boundaries of his human limitations. So with that said, let's look at just a few passages of Jesus and his dependence. First one is this, Jesus' miracles were often Spirit-empowered. Luke five seventeen through 19 On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on 
a bed, a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let down with his bed, uh, and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. Uh, sometimes I like to sit back and imagine like what that looked like. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, like, did they saw a hole? I mean, you know what? Like, what's going on? Uh, but they were persistent. But look at what it says there in verse, uh, the end of 17. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. You say, of course the power of the Lord was with him. It's Jesus. No, I, I think what Luke means is that the power to heal was coming from the Spirit. That the power to heal was with him. That there was a dependence, that, that God the Father, that, or I'm sorry, God the Spirit was upon him to do this work. I mean, why, else would, why else would Luke would say that? Well, of course, the power is Jesus. I mean, that's like saying, well, I, I can't even give you a terrible example. So here's what happens by the power of the Spirit, through the man Jesus, the paralyzed man is healed. I don't think this is Jesus reaching into his humanity. I think this is Jesus depending on the power of the Spirit to do an act that's beyond human limitations. Now actually later on in the next few verses, I'm not going to look at it right now, I've already addressed it, is I think an example of his divinity where he actually forgives the sins of the paralyzed man. So, this is an example simply of miracles. They're often Spirit-empowered. Second, it is in the power of the Spirit that Jesus preached. So His carrying out other parts of the mission of God is, is done in the power of the Spirit. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 15. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. I mean, how much plainer can it get? How much more plain can he get? And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So here he comes. He comes back in the power of the Spirit, teaching and being glorified by all. So as Jesus continued on about the mission of God, his strength, as indicated here, comes from the Spirit. And in this strength, he proclaims the glories of God. It's interesting. At this point in his ministry, he's being glorified by all. Later, as we know, that will turn, right? He's still going to be doing it in the power of the Spirit. He's still going to be proclaiming the same truths. His message isn't going to change. And what you will see is that the hearts of the people will change. They will want to gather around themselves people meaning removing Jesus, because he's not saying what they want him to say. But Jesus continues in the power of the Spirit. <clears throat> Third, Jesus' Spirit dependency enabled him to resist sin. His Spirit dependency played a role, a primary role, in his ability to resist sin. His ability to... to Live righteously. 
I love this passage. Luke 4, so earlier on in Luke 4, verse 1 and 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Just note a few things here. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, moves on to do this task. I want to talk about the task a little bit. We don't have time to read this whole passage, but hopefully you know that what happens here is that Satan comes, he tempts him, Jesus responds in a very peculiar way, a very specific way, I should say. But here's what, here's what I want to say. He had the power of the Spirit, and in such, he resisted the temptation of Satan himself. Like, you understand, Satan's not omnipresent, right? He can only be one place at a time. So, most of us, he's not actively tempting himself, okay? Um, I'm going to you know, hurt your pride there, but it might be one of his minions, and I don't mean the yellow guys. Yeah, I got my movie reference in for the day. Uh, it might be one of his, they might be harassing you, and it might just be your own evil heart, or your own evil flesh, rather. But here, Satan himself is tempting Jesus. I want you to think, as, we, as I think through this for just the next few moments, think about the garden. Satan himself, in the form of a serpent, a serpent is in the garden. So Satan comes to himself. Satan doesn't offer Jesus simply food. Just as Satan in the garden doesn't offer Adam and Eve simply food. He's offering them authority. He's offering them autonomy. He's offering them an opportunity to glorify self. Same thing's happening here. But how does Jesus respond? Again, think about Adam and Eve. But then think about how does Jesus respond? So in the fullness of the Spirit, Jesus responds by reminding Satan not only what God has said, but in doing so, but in, re- in the very act of reminding God, or reminding Satan of what God has said, he reminds him that he does, he reminds Satan, Jesus reminds Satan that he doesn't trust Satan, but he trusts his Father. His faith in the Father is not shaken here. He's full of the Spirit and he believes the words of the Father. In the garden, what happens? In the garden, what happens? Satan says, but God didn't really say that. He won't really do that. And instead of reaffirming, Adam and Eve, instead of reaffirming their faith in God, they waver. Instead of saying, no, Satan, we believe what God has said. We have faith and trust in Him. They begin to go, huh, I don't know about that. You might be right. What does Jesus do in the face of the same temptation? He says, no. Matter of fact, let me tell you what my Father has said. And I believe what my Father has said. I trust what my Father has said. 
See, Adam and Eve were on a mission to affirm their own glory, and questioning God's glory in trustworthiness was the ticket to the fall. But Jesus, He didn't fall. He reaffirmed His unwavering faith in the Father by the power of the Spirit that lived inside of Him. I don't think Jesus is living in His divinity, particularly at this point. This was the Spirit indwelt man, Jesus. What do you see happens? Why is that so significant? Why is this so significant? Why does He have to be a man? Why does He have to be dependent on the Spirit? In order to be the second Adam. In order to be the righteous one who resists temptation. The one to reverse the effects of the fall. The one to begin a brand new race. The one who will be the first child of God to start this new people. The one who says, all of my descendants can depend on my righteousness to resist the temptation of Satan himself. And then what is he doing? What is he doing in this? What am I trying to point out to you? This is going to lead us into next Sunday. Is that Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, is saying this, I have faith in the Father. I have faith in the Father. I trust the Father. What He has said, I believe. What He has said, I rest on. What He has said and who He is, that's where my heart is. It's not with you, Satan. It's not trusting the things of this world. It's in my Father. I trust Him. I believe Him. I live for Him. Jesus' spirit dependency enabled him to resist sin. So, with that said, three three applications for our congregation, and then I'm going to leave you with one imperative. Three applications. Well, one, yeah. Three applications. First one is this. We should be able to recognize the power of the Spirit. We should be able to recognize the power of the Spirit. What have we just done in exercise for us as a people? I've walked you through three examples to help us recognize the power of the Spirit. How are you going to strive to live in the power of the Spirit if you don't know what the power of the Spirit looks like or what you believe the power of the Spirit looks like is not actually the power of the Spirit. Okay? You should be able to recognize what the power of the Spirit... And listen, I'm not going to do this one justice, uh, but nevertheless, here we go. I'm not talking about primarily like seeing miracles like of people healed and such, even though I think that could be a potential example. But what does it look like when someone is living moment by moment in the power of the Spirit? And I think, again, just an observation here, I think that many of us have a very mystical view of what this looks like. Very mystical. I want to encourage you, if you get a chance, go back to Ephesians 3. 16 through 17a, there's a sermon there uh, that we taught <laughs> over a year ago um, that's really helpful. It's where we talked about this, this being strengthened in the inner man and how it's like a muscle. 
That's not just some mystical thing that we just kind of ask for, God, please strengthen my inner man. But there's a practical and a, and, and, and yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But we think, some, I think we have a lot of very mystical view of what this power of the Spirit looks like. Let me read for you Galatians 5, 19 through 23. Now the works of the flesh are evident. You're going to hear a, a juxtaposition here. The works of the flesh are evident. Here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, a.k.a. etc. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, listen to him, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So those who do works in the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's that mean? It means you won't go to heaven. Okay? Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So very quickly here. Example. For thinking about the flesh. So, so here's the deal. Someone who's living in the power of the Spirit, their life's going to look like 22 of this chapter. Someone who's not living in the power of the Spirit, their life is going to have the, these fruits, as we saw, as works of the flesh. So let me give you an example. Your strength to do whatever you are doing is coming from the flesh. Just to pick one of these in this group, if it's causing dissension or divisions, it would be a work of the flesh. Not something that's coming out of the power of the Spirit. On the flip side, an example, your strength is from the Spirit if you're exhibiting these traits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Again, I don't have time to exposit all this, but I want you to understand that I, I think in verse 22 that it's not one or the other. It's not like three or four of these and not the others. Like, I think they come as a package deal. If you understand how these things interact with each other, that's a package deal. There's no way you're going to be joyful if you don't have peace and patience and you're not kind. There's no way you're going to have faithfulness if you don't have love and joy and peace. These, these things come as a package deal. I also want to be quick to give a caveat here that sometimes we, there's kind of a mixture going on. We have mixed motivations. And maybe one moment we're, we're, we're walking in the Spirit and the next moment we're doing something completely out of the flesh. So we to be careful that we, that we leave room for some of this to, to be confusing even. But the question is, is when you look at life or you look at a situation, what's the, what's the kind of trajectory 
of your life? What's the, what's the uh, overwhelming like, consensus, if you will, like the, uh, the <clears throat> description of that time? Whatever situation it might be, am I, is there overwhelming evidence of the fruit of the Spirit? So the issue is this, we've got to be able to recognize the power of the Spirit. Recognize it in ourselves and recognize it in each other. How else are we going to know what to go after? We've got to know what it looks like to live in the power of the Spirit. I would encourage you to spend more time studying that. Second application. Some of us don't encounter or rarely encounter the power of the Spirit because we're not engaged in the mission of the Spirit. You've heard it said here before that God's not going to give you the power to build your own kingdom. So if you find yourself weak and frail and not able to make it, maybe, maybe you're trying to build the wrong kingdom or it could also be that you're trying to build the right kingdom but in your own strength. But I think many of us don't encounter the power of God at least very often because we're not engaged in the mission of God very often. One author I read this week is that the Holy Spirit is not a good luck charm. He came upon Jesus and the church for mission, for a purpose, a specific purpose. This same author went on to say, don't give the Spirit credit for getting a good parking space. The Spirit found a parking space for Jesus, and that was on the cross. And for the apostles, the parking space was in prison. See, Jesus' Spirit-dependent life was based on humility and right mission. What do we know the Holy Spirit, what's His mission? His mission is to exalt Jesus. It's to exalt Jesus and honor the fathers, to carry out the mission of God. Right? We read this in, the, in Ephesians, that, that the Father is summarizing everything, is summing up all things and bringing all things into submission underneath Jesus. So listen, when we want to do things that are a part of that plan, we have the power of the Spirit of God for that plan. Any other plan, no power. That plan, all the power. Anything else, no power. Another author said this, the Holy Spirit who descended upon him, that is Jesus, at his baptism, entered into him and filled him, was the Spirit of God who infused him with the power to overcome temptations, teach with authority, challenge established religious structures in the name of God, see people not in the mass but as individuals, sense the inner joy of each person or their pain and hurt, reach out and touch people, lift them up, help them, heal them, find them, redeem them, save them, restore them to wholeness, and turn them back to God. In a word, the Spirit came to effectually carry to completion the mission of His Father 
that his father had given him to do and which only Jesus could do in this fallen, broken world. And that's the mission of the Spirit. Do you hear that? Infused him with power to overcome temptations, to teach with authority. To sense the inner joy, to sense the inner joy of each person, or to sense their pain and hurt, to reach out and touch people, to lift them up, to help them, to heal them, to find them, to redeem them, to save them, to restore them to wholeness, turn them back to God. That's the mission. Now, as we know, Jesus will have this mission. He'll be about this mission. He'll be about this mission perfectly. And there will still be those who reject him. So make sure we don't equate our idea of success and push that upon what the mission should look like. But nevertheless, this is the mission of the Spirit. And for Jesus and for us, The power of the Almighty God is at our disposal for His mission. Third application. Most often, we depend on the wrong source of power. We want to do great things. We want good things to happen. We want those around us to experience good things. Some questions here. Where do you look to for power to overcome sin? Like, what's that look like? What's it look like? Where do you, where do you, where are you depending on most? Where do you, where do you run to to overcome sin? Where are your thoughts, your mind? Where does it gravitate towards? Where does your pen gravitate toward in your journal? Where do, you, where do you look for power to forgive those who hurt you? To be patient. Where do you look for power to lead people to walk with Jesus? Whether that be your spouse, or your children, or a parent. Whether they be redeemed already, or lost. Where do you look for where do you look to for power to lead these people? Again, what are you depending on most? What are you what are you strategizing and resting in most? Is it uh, what you might say? Where do you look for power to get through a trial? A struggle? Or maybe even just the next day. Where do you where do you look? Where do you go to? What's your go to? Like Peter Pan. I mean, do you go to like just thinking happy thoughts? That is Peter Pan, right? Just think happy thoughts. You can fly. Where do you go to? 
I mean, eventually those happy thoughts are going to run out or are going to weigh less than the trial that you're in. You know, for many of us, these are the places we turn to for power. We, maybe we try to exercise our own, what we perceive as sovereign power to change things. We'll just try harder. We'll simply rely on ourselves. Maybe we turn to our ability to control or persuade. Or maybe we turn, in these kinds of situations, we turn to uh, escapism. We just want to get out of the situation. We just want to escape from the situation. We want, on one side, you have these people who they want to go at it like a bowl. On this side, they just want to leave and get away from it. Maybe you turn to your ability to remove yourselves from the situation. And that can look many different ways. It can look like just leaving. It can look like TV, pornography, food, books, etc. What, is, what does that look like? What source of power are you depending on? Like where does your, what's your default? Where does it land? Where, do you, where does it go to first? That will tell you. Right where your dependence is. But look at Ephesians 3, 14-16 with me very quickly. For this reason, Paul speaking here, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit, in your inner being. Remember, remember the inner man and its strength by the Spirit. I don't know if you can remember back when we worked through this passage. Again, it's been a year ago, but it's, it's not something that just comes in some mystical way. Where we talked about kind of this idea of discipline and working out this muscle. But there's like another piece to this puzzle. You see, our dependency on the power of the Spirit is connected to our beholding the glory of God. Let me say that again. Our dependency on the power of the Spirit is connected to our beholding the glory of God. I really want to get in and like say one causes the other, but there's like this like the power of the Spirit has to be there for us to behold the glory of God. But then as we behold the glory of God, like the, the power of the Spirit is, is increased. And let me point you back again. Go back and listen to the sermon, chapter 3, verse 16 through 17a. I think you'll be most encouraged if you do that. But very briefly here, verse 16. He says that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with the power through His Spirit in your inner being. You see, treasuring the gloriousness of God will indeed spur on dependency upon the power of the Spirit. This is where the Spirit and truth kind of go hand in hand. He says according to the riches of His glory, 
You see, we can know, though, at least to some measure, and in increasing measure, the weight of God's glory through the Spirit's use of God's self-revelation, a.k.a. the Bible. Right, we talked about God is great, and we learned this in DNA too, God is glorious, God is good, and God is gracious, and, and what all these mean. You see, all these truths of God should inspire worship in our hearts as they are all a part of the riches of God's glory. We discover these truths, though, largely through the Word of God. But we must go in humility to the Word. This is why humility is so key. Like I said, we can't behold His glory when we are pridefully captivated by our own. But as the Spirit aids our beholding of His glory, look what happens in this passage. Look at verse 16. That a, so that Christ may grant you to be well in your heart through the Spirit in your inner being, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the being rooted and what is in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, this is the Christ dwelling in our hearts. And you see there at the end of verse 19, this, this fullness of God. You see the, the power of the Spirit filling God's people. On our own strength, go to God and say, give me now the strength. Go to God and say, give me now the power of the Spirit. I think the power of the Spirit gives us, as His children, the ability to look at God and behold His glory. And then what happens as we pull? Pride is melted are filled to the full pride is melted away in his face sin is broken in his presence like jesus jesus we're talking jesus as he lives in faith Beholding the glory of God, he's doing this. He lives in faith. Beholding the glory of God, he's doing that out of his divinity. Because if he's doing, if he's beholding the glory of God out of his divinity, then he's not doing it by faith, he's doing it by sight. Because in his divinity, he knew what that looked like. Humanity is the scriptures, because the divinity's been veiled. He trusts the Father. He reads His glory by the power of the Spirit. He lives the Father. He beholds His glory by the power of the Spirit. And He lives by faith. Hebrews 12 says He is the author and perfecter of our faith. How can He be the author and perfecter of our faith if He's beholding the glory of God out of sight? 
if we behold God's glory, here, this, this is true, if, if we behold God's glory, this filling of the Spirit is connected, this power of the Spirit is connected. I, said, I, I was in, this is not in my notes, I'm going to break for just a second. I was in a conversation two nights ago about why God's people, we were just kind of talking about why does God's people not really reading pursue Him and live in joy and dependence. And I was recently reading John Piper's book, uh, at least the first chapter of it, um, When I Don't Desire God. And he says this, he says, When I discovered that the chief end of man was to glorify God by enjoying Him forever, that that both excited me and also terrified me. Why? Holding the glory. Why? Because that meant if I was to pursue beholding the glory of God and enjoying Him in that forever, that's what honored God, then anything else that I did instead of that was sinful, was dishonoring to God. And that terrified me. And we were asking the question, kind of why, why, why like, why are we as Christians, why do we pursue so many other things? And I think some is because we don't recognize the, the weight of His glory. And the other part is we don't recognize the weight of the sinfulness when we pursue something else. But Jesus, I think, clearly shows us that we can indeed behold His glory. And I would remind us again of Philippians 2, that He who began a good work is the one who will complete it. Let me encourage you with these last couple thoughts. Let's, on the power of the Spirit, just as Christ, hold His glory, the child will do as He grows. power of the Spirit for the mission of God. Been rescued through Him. Listen, this behold His glory. Nation, like never before. How marvelous. Like never before. How marvelous. How marvelous. We get to, how marvelous, how marvelous we get to behold His glory. How marvelous we get to behold His glory. That's what, how marvelous we get to behold His glory. That's what we know. The Christmas story is not just about us beholding His glory. It's about God, His glory, His story. But how marvelous it is that as a part of his story and his plan is for his people to behold his glory. For his people to live in dependence on the power of the Spirit and so display his glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be sick and tired disgusted even with living a life that is weak. Not weak in the sense that we have to build up confidence in ourselves, but, but weak in the sense that we live without the power of the Spirit. So in a sense, we have to recognize that the flesh is weak. 
And therefore, then, strive to live in dependence on the Spirit who is not weak. That we'd be tired of living. That we'd be worn out and discontent with living a life apart from the power of the Spirit. Father, we know that Your Spirit enables Your people to behold Your glory, Father. So please, please, please do that with Your people. We give You praise. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.